Good morning. You may now rise again. We will be reading out of four passages this morning, out of the book of Exodus, chapters 4, as well as some from chapters 5 and chapters 6. If you're using the dark blue, navy blue Bible in front of you, in back of you, to the side of you, or borrow one from your friend nearby, we will be starting on pages 47, and we will continue through pages 48. The first passage is Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. That's Exodus 4, um, chapter verses 29 through 31, on page 47. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The next passage is chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, right below that, verses 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us, Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. It's now Exodus Chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. Verses 17 through 23. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel said, saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall no means, by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now we're turning to chapter 6 of Exodus, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, by my name the Lord, I will, did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, I'm sorry for disrupting that normal flow of worship by making you stand, making you sit and stand on an extra uh, time. Uh, my name is Thomas Wong, and I am a pastor here at HCC, and I'm primarily focused on Chinese ministry, so it's my special privilege this morning to be able to share with you and um, speak from the Word of God this morning. Uh, before I, my family and I came to Houston, we were serving in uh, Atlanta for years, and uh, my wife and I, Kate, actually met before that while we were in seminary in Chicago. And I remember the first time I met her, uh, it, was at a, uh, it was at our church at the time, and she had come to visit, um, and we said hi, said our hellos, and it wasn't until maybe a few weeks later when my friend had a birthday party and seated us next to each other uh, at the party, and we sat, wanted to... We were seated next to each other, we were talking, we were saying hi, and I started to develop an interest in her. And so one thing led to another. We started to spend a lot of time together intentionally, alone, uh, in date-like scenarios that I thought were dates, that I'm not so sure if she felt the same way, but it seemed like it was. Uh, eventually got to the point where I was like, you know, I want to make sure this relationship is going somewhere. And so we decided to have the DTR, for those of you who are too young to know what that term means, it means define the relationship. And prior to approaching Kate about having that talk about what exactly is happening here, what's this between us, uh, I was incredibly worried. I was stressed out. I was talking to some of my best friends, multiple ones. I was asking them, do you think she's going to say yes about, you know, going out with me? Is she going to be, does she really like me? And, and every single person that I talked to, after they would hear me out, they were like, I think you're, 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 you're too worried. You're getting yourself too worked up about something that, you know, you shouldn't be. You know, just give her a chance, you know, tell her how you feel, tell her what's on your mind, and see what happens. Uh, and actually, a couple of them are like, I think she probably is going to say yes, given all that's been happening between you two. And I was like, I'm not sure, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure. So I had this whole elaborate plan laid out that I was going to talk to her about our relationship on her birthday. And I had it all planned out, and I remember sitting in the car, uh, and I was fidgeting, I was nervous, and I finally brought it up. And after, you know, I just told her about 
what I thought about her and how attracted I was by her. And uh, I was like, you know, how do you feel? And she was like, you know, I feel the same way. And I was like, really? And it, and then this whole, I, I, I just felt this pressure even lifted off me. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. Um, and it was, I just went along after that very smoothly. And looking back, some of my friends were telling me, what were you worried about? Like, what? What was going on? And I said, I just wanted some certainty. I just, you just never know. You, you just never know until you hear the words, until you get absolute confirmation that, yes, we're on the same page. Yes, we're thinking the exact same things. Yes, what you want is exactly what's been on my heart as well. And until I hear that, I see that there's an element of doubt. There's risk involved. And it's hard for someone like me to not dwell on the uncertainties. And I think so often in life, whether it's in a dating relationship, whether you're trying to make plans for the future, whether you're trying to figure out where God is leading you, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much unknown that you cannot have 100% absolute confirmation before you make a decision. It's so often that you need to take that step. Perhaps it's an act of faith, but whatever it might be, we go through moments, process, duration of doubt and disbelief, sometimes directed at God himself. And that's what I want to share with you from the word of the Lord this morning, from the book of Exodus. And I understand here in the English congregation, you guys have been going through the book of Exodus earlier in the year. So whatever I'm sharing and speaking from, this should not come as news to you. But I think it's important that we go back to what we see in the Word of God in Moses' story, in the story of the Exodus, in the people of Israel, as they struggle with Pharaoh and the Egyptians How do we deal with doubt and disbelief? In fact, let's even take a step further back. How do doubt and disbelief even arise in the first place? And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the cause and the cure for our doubts and disbelief. And we're going to look at the two common causes of our doubts. And then we're going to look at how God addresses and cures our disbelief of him and his works. So two causes and one cure. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. As Karen has read for us, it's quite an extensive passage from chapter 4, verses 29, all the way to chapter 6, verse 12. And what we're going to do is going to first, we're going to look at chapter 5 in a little bit. And we're going to look at the first cause for man's doubt and disbelief. And this first, what we find here is that we make assumptions about people. Assumptions about people will bring up doubt and disbelief. We see here in Pharaoh's response to Moses' plea in chapter 5. Now, what do we see that Pharaoh assumes? He assumes two things. Two reasons in his mind why Israel and Moses want to leave Egypt. Namely, laziness and lies. And this first assumption is that Israel is lazy. 
Pharaoh thinks this is all an excuse because of laziness. You see, he, as a student of human behavior, as the king of Egypt, in charge of multiple citizens and especially slaves, he understands human behavior and the motives of the heart. He doesn't know God. So he can only rely on his experience and his assumptions. And the only reason in his experience for people to want to leave or more specifically to slack off from work to shirk responsibility is so that they can take a break. It's they can just let things go, relax, and not do what they're supposed to. We all assume things based on our experience without direct evidence or confirmation. And the assumptions are ultimately just guesses. And that's what Pharaoh does here. He says in verses 4 and 5 that you are not working and you need to go and do your job. Stop this exodus nonsense. He says in verse 4, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And then later on in verses 8 and 17, he says, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Verse 17, he repeats the same accusation, but he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. In Pharaoh's mind, the only reason why this idea of Exodus has even come up is because the Israelites are lazy, idle. You are idle. You don't want to do your work. You want to skip out on your job. You want to procrastinate. You want to take it easy. So stop this nonsense. And that is based on his personal experience. That the Hebrews are a bunch of lazy slackers who don't want to work. And that's why they brought up this idea of going away to worship God. And so the first cause for people's doubt and disbelief is assumption based on their experience. And that's what Pharaoh does. Don't bring up God. Don't try to justify your laziness. Don't try to make excuses for your sins by bringing up God. It's really your sin of idols and laziness. Because why? Because that's what people do. And Pharaoh assumes he knows what's going on. And the second assumption that he makes is that Moses and Aaron are lying. It's not just that the Israelites are lazy. It's also that Moses and Aaron are lying. And you see this in verse 9, when Pharaoh tells the slave drivers to work the Hebrews so hard that they will not pay attention to the lies. He says in verse 9, Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now what lies is he referring to? Well, Verses 1 and 3. When Moses and Aaron went to said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
Verse 3, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. That to Pharaoh is a major, big time lie. God somehow has appeared to Moses and Aaron, wants them to leave, go into the wilderness to worship him. And if they don't do this, the threat is in verse 3 that pestilence or sword will come upon the Hebrews if they don't obey, that they will be killed for not doing so. And so Pharaoh says, that's just hogwash. Now, of course, from his perspective, this is perfectly understandable that he would think such things. He should assume that Moses was lying. He's never heard of the Lord of the Hebrews. When has he ever appeared and sent his messengers to declare that, hey, I want this people to come and worship and serve me? Now, out of nowhere, two random Hebrew guys claim that God has appeared to them and wants to let, let wants Pharaoh to release these slaves so that they can go and serve. Now, what would you think if you were Pharaoh and listening to such a request? To Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron are false prophets. They're claiming to hear some voice from some God in order to do what? To benefit themselves. That's, after all, what people usually do. They prey on the misery and the sufferings of the weak and the poor and the downtrodden, and they see an opportunity to benefit themselves, so they come in and they spread some false promises and false hopes so that they can be put in top, on the top, be leaders, and come up with this grand notion of servitude and worship to some god in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, I know better. And Pharaoh assumes that this is what's driving this whole agenda. Lies. And so laziness and lies are Pharaoh's assumptions, which leads to his disbelief and doubt that God actually did send Moses and Aaron to make this request. And you see this in his response in verses 6 to 9. Pharaoh, on the same day, commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go, gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And there it is. Lies and laziness. And Pharaoh's response is, I know how to deal with this. I know your lies and your unwillingness to work. And here's my response. All that work that you don't want to do, too bad. You not only must continue to fulfill your daily requirement, the daily task the daily quota of bricks that you must produce. In fact, on top of that, I'm not even going to supply you with the necessary tools and resource to make that happen. Don't give the Israelites any straw that would help them make stronger and better bricks. 
And that's what people tells us, tell us that in those days, in the process of making bricks, what you need to do is you take clay in that liquid, that sort of melted form, and you mix it, hopefully, with either straw or grass, something that's linear that will help and give that brick its final structure, that will reinforce its structure so that it won't break as easily. So you can make bricks perfectly fine without straw, but the problem is they brick, they break, and they become not unreliable. And so Pharaoh does this peculiar thing. I want you to still do the same amount of work every day, but I'm not going to give you the tools to do your job as well as you should. Why would he do that? This is an impossible demand. It seems absolutely counterintuitive. Why is he doing this? You see, what Pharaoh is doing here is actually quite shrewd because what he wants is to deal with the laziness and the lies. These are his assumptions. And so he wants to make the Hebrew slaves realize that life could be a lot harder if you try to slack off. It's Pharaoh's way of saying, you don't want to work hard? Then your alternative is extreme work. You either work hard or die from impossible labor demands. And on top of that, Pharaoh wants to turn the Israelites against Moses. He believes the Israelites are to blame for laziness and Moses to blame for coming up with this ideal of Exodus. Remember, he's assuming that's because of laziness and lies. So the best way to deal with this problem is to turn Israel against Moses. And that's why he orders the unreasonable work demands. He doesn't give them any reason. And it's not until the leaders of Israel come in verse 17 to Pharaoh to plead. That's when Pharaoh explains his rationale. And he says, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. And that way, the Israelites realize we're in trouble. Because Pharaoh is mad at us, and he's mad at Moses and Aaron, and now we are suffering. So they, in turn, turn against Moses, and they complain, and they grumble, and they cry out. And so Pharaoh's brilliant plan has come to fruition, and it's working beautifully. The Israelites are complaining to Moses, and in chapter 6, verse 9, Moses after he addresses the people of Israel with God's response, they still will not listen. Because in chapter 6, verse 9, we read, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their spirits have been broken by Pharaoh, by their doubts, by their anger at Moses. Now, We may claim to be Christians, but we often think just like Pharaoh. We claim that we know the Lord, but we act like we don't. And you say, well, when do we do that? When we assume human behavior like Pharaoh. When tough times come, when God's promises aren't happening, when you're doing all the right things, you're praying, you're tithing, you're serving, you're active in church, But not only do you see no fruit, worse yet, what you find and experience are terrible, bad results. And that's when you and I begin to doubt and we begin to disbelieve. 
And we assume that the reason all this is happening is because someone screwed up. Someone must have done something wrong. Maybe it's me, or maybe it's someone else. On the flip side, if things are going well and everything is just going swimmingly, the ministry should just grow and grow and grow, and whatever is good in my life should continue to remain in such state. But this is when we make false assumptions of human behavior. When things are going our way, one of the biggest temptations is to assume that it's someone's fault, either mine or yours. We think someone is lazy, someone is lying, someone isn't doing their job right. We assume human behavior is the reason why bad things are happening. And we, when we do so, we begin to doubt. We begin to question. We even refuse to believe that God may allow such hardships to happen. And so the next time when something unexpected, something bad happens to you, don't immediately assume it's because of human error or human behavior. Maybe you've done everything that's everything right. And maybe everybody else is doing their job just fine. But that does not guarantee a positive result according to your desires and plans. God has his ways. God is sovereign. And sometimes and often, his ways are different, strange, but ultimately better than our way. We doubt and disbelieve God when we assume human behavior. And we doubt and disbelieve God when we presume how God works. And that's the second cause of our doubt and disbelief towards God, is when we start to presume we know how God will always work. Perhaps some of you have seen uh, the movies Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and its follow-up, Prince Caspian. And in that follow-up movie, one of the primary themes that we see in that story is how now the same group of children who arrived back in Narnia years later But things have changed. And now they are remembered that they're called to be kings. They're supposed to lead. They're supposed to bring people to God. But Peter, the oldest one, starts to assume and presume that how things were done in the past is how things should be done now. And he presumes that he has been brought back to Narnia for such a purpose. And he presumes that this is exactly how God works, that God's going to appear in the same way, that God's going to use him in the same manner. And when finally, when God does appear in the form of a lion, but in an unexpected manner, in an unexpected fashion, completely different from the first time, he is taught an important lesson that God's ways are not our ways. And be careful to presume that you know how God works at all times based on all your previous experiences with God, or based on what you think you know about God. To presume something means to make a guess based on probability. So, for example, you say that the victim was presumed dead when the vehicle was found. That's a guess based on probability. To believe something is the case without proper investigation. And the Israelites and Moses are both guilty of this, as we're going to see in our text. They presume God's behavior, how God works. 
At the end of chapter 4, we're told that Israel believed Moses because of all the signs. They believed him when he told them God called him to lead Israel out of Egypt. And we read in verse 30 of chapter 4, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord has spoken to Moses and dipped the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Well, that's a marvelous picture. But therein lies the root of their problem as well. They presume God's behavior. Israel thinks that all of this is going to come easy. They think that Exodus is going to happen quickly, that Moses is going to and Aaron and his brother, they're going to appear before Pharaoh. They're going to talk to him, and then Pharaoh's just going to let them go. Or if not, at least God's going to make things happen very quickly. There's not going to be any more hardships. There's going to be no more slavery. It's going to be freedom, a fresh start. We're going to be able to worship God and follow him, go into the promised land. And make no mistake, they heard everything that God had said to Moses before, earlier in chapter 4. Now, what did God say to Moses? Because Moses, when he was being approached by God with this responsibility of taking, of approaching Pharaoh and leading the Israelites out of Egypt, God makes it clear to Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That Pharaoh's going to say no. It's not going to be so easy, but God says, that's part of my plan. I'm going to judge Egypt, and I'm going to reveal myself to be God, and you will know that I am the Lord, because I'm the one responsible for bringing you out of Egypt. And God makes that clear to Moses, and Aaron, as we're told here, repeats that to the Israelites. And they've heard all of that, but they conveniently forget. Well, why would that be the case? Because people love to settle on the positive aspects of good news. They love to hear that God has heard their misery, that God has now sent his messengers, that God is going to be at work. And how do they know God's going to work? They saw the signs, the miracles that Moses performed before them, turning a staff into a snake, turning his hand into white leprosy and then healing it immediately in front of their eyes and turning water into blood and back into water. Wow. God can do such wonders and signs in front of them. Surely God will do these things before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to believe. He's going to let us go, and things will be just easy because God is with us. That's what they presume, that God will deliver them right away, and the hardships and slavery will end overnight. Well, that's a pretty big thing to take for granted to assume and expect that God will do things according to their expectation, according to their timeline. And the irony is that it's not just that the Hebrews would presume God's behavior inaccurately, but that Moses does the same thing. We're told in chapter 6 that the Hebrews would not listen to Moses when he tries to reassure them of God's promise. And so Moses, in turn, He turns around and he begins to doubt God. 
Because he's presuming that God will also make things right quickly. He's thinking like the Hebrews. If the Hebrews aren't even persuaded by Moses, how in the world is Pharaoh going to be convinced? And so Moses presumes that when God is working for you, things should also be moving quickly. And if the Hebrews can't be convinced, how in the world is Pharaoh going to change his heart? This should have been a piece of cake. Why why are both the Hebrews and the Egyptians rejecting this message? Now, to put it in a different light, think of it this way. It's almost as if Moses is thinking and saying, if God can't solve my problems now, why in the world do I need God? We say, where do you get that? Well, look in verse 22 of chapter 5. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why? Did you ever send me? You hear that? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and all, and you have not delivered your people at all. You hear that accusation? That voice of doubt and disbelief in Moses, the great messenger of God, the lawgiver, the father of Israel, the hero, supposedly. He questions and doubts God simply because Hebrews don't, won't listen. Because he's presuming that things should be easy. He's presuming that this is how God should work. Moses performs some signs. The Hebrews will leave. He goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh maybe re- rejects a little bit, but then Moses delivers more signs somehow, or God does some kind of miracles, and all everything is going to go quickly and easily and smoothly. When we presume God is going to work in a certain manner, or God has to do things this way, watch out. Because things will often turn out very differently. If you think God is on your side, therefore things will go easy on you. And that things will just get better and better. That you will never experience any more hardships. If God is with me, who can stand against me, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible promises? It's like this never-ending times of economic prosperity. Everything that's good will just keep on getting better. And everything good in my life will just get better. Everything bad in my life will go away. In fact, that's the first lesson in every premarital counseling session that I've ever done is to address and dispel that type of myth. If you think that by getting, coming together in marriage, that everything that was bad in your life prior to marriage is just going to somehow disappear, and everything that's good in your life is just going to get better and better in marriage, you've got something else coming. That's not how life works. You see, there's another aspect in life. If you're a fan of basketball, you may have heard of this hot hand fallacy. Well, basically, what it means is if you make two or three baskets in a row, you've got the hot hand. Therefore, you should keep passing that player the ball because the assumption is he should make the next shot or he's more likely to make the next basket. And people do this in gambling as well. And this is the type of faulty thinking that whatever is going well now or in the past will continue And so we start to act on such presumptions, false logic and reasoning. This happened during the housing market crisis back in the 08 and 07. Leading up to that, people thought if the stock market and the housing market is just going to keep going up and up and up, this is the time to buy. Let's buy. Let's invest now until the bubble burst. 
and everything comes crashing down. And we begin to look back and say, what went wrong? And we start realizing all the false assumptions and presumptions, all the things that we thought about God are actually not true or incomplete. We make this mistake all the time. And therefore, when things come crashing down, we question, we doubt. We may even raise our voices at God like Moses. Why did you ever even send me? Why did you even bother? If you're not going to do things according to my way, my timeline, my expectation and presumptions. This is the pattern in scripture. Look at the example of the story of Joseph. He was told or revealed at a very young age through dreams and vision that one day when he gets older, that his family, his father and mother and his brothers are going to one day bow down at his feet. But how long did it take before that happened? He had to go through betrayal, slavery, prison, false accusation for years in a foreign land before this came to fruition. Same with King David. At a very young age, he was crowned or at least anointed to be the next king of Israel. But do you know how old or how much time transpired before this came to pass? It wasn't until he was 30. Scholars would say at least about probably 15 years from promise and prophecy and anointing till the actual time of actual crowning. And in that time in between, he went through betrayal. He was running for his life. He was living in the wilderness. His life was in peril. And there were moments when he doubted and questioned God that you can read for yourself in his prayers and his cries for help in the book of Psalms. Where are you, God? Where are your promises? Isn't this how we work? And look at those who were following and crowning Jesus as he approached the city of Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they are presuming that this is the promised Messiah, that once he enters the city, that he is going to lead Israel out of bondage from the Romans. He's going to deliver salvation politically. He's going to drive the foreigners out. And then a few days later, he is crucified. What happened? What happened? When we presume we know how God's going to work, and we make faulty assumptions, of just because God promises something marvelous, beautiful, blessings, achievements, salvation, that the road to that place if we presume it's going to be always quick, always easy, always in the same fashion, the same manner, just because God is with us, we've got something else coming. And when things don't happen according to our expectation, we doubt, we question. Look at Job and his three friends. The story of Job is a familiar one to many of us. Job was declared by God as the most righteous person on earth, He's devoted to the Lord. He offers sacrifices. He worships God. And yet, God allows incredible suffering and misery to happen to him. And Job never finds out why. 
And so his three best friends come alongside, and they're crying for him. They're mourning with him. He's lost his children. He's lost his wealth. His wife has deserted him. His health is just decaying. And he's in absolute misery and agony. And his friends tell him, this is happening to you because you've done something evil. You have sinned against the Lord. And therefore, you must repent. And so these three friends, their faulty logic, their presumption is, if God is with you, he will not allow these bad things to happen to you. If these bad things are happening to you, it must be because God is judging you for your sins. They presume to know this is how God works. And they could not be further mistaken. Have you ever struggled with doubt? Ever questioned God's presence? God's love? Why, why is this terrible thing happening to me or to someone that I care about? Is God mad at me? Perhaps you're wondering if God was punishing you or has abandoned you. Maybe it's not doubt, it's, or it's, maybe it's discouragement. You're discouraged by what you see is going on in the church or in an individual's life. You may be frustrated by the lack of progress. Some of us may even lose hope. We wonder if God's still working, if God's still blessing, if God's presence is still here. Well, let me encourage you and remind you this morning, don't assume or presume. Don't assume people's motives or behavior. Don't presume how God works or how God will always work. If you allow these things to take over your thinking, doubt and disbelief will creep in and cripple you. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Now the question is, how do we deal with that? And we come to our final point this morning. The cure to our doubt and disbelief is that we must be secured by God's promises. We must be secured by God's promises. In chapter 6, verses 2 to 8, we find here what's interesting is when Moses and Israel exp express their doubt and disbelief, God does not respond, respond by giving them more signs. Instead, he talks to Moses in verses 4 to 5 about a covenant. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says, I also establish my covenant with them, them being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors. I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Again and again, God says, I remember, I know what I promised your forefathers. And I want you to hear from me, Moses. And I want you to tell the people of Israelites, I remember, and I am a God who keeps my promises. And that should be enough for you too. That should quiet your doubt and disbelief. And you say, well, how, how, how does that work? Well, starting in verse 6 to 8, God says seven times, I am. Seven I am's. And I'm sure that you've gone through this before in other messages and sermons. But this is important because what God is doing here, he starts and ends by saying, I am the Lord. I am all-powerful. I am eternal. I am unchanging. In verse 6, he says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. That's the language of redemption. 
And verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's adoption. And then the last part of verse 8, where God says, I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you for a possession. That's the language of blessing. Redemption, adoption, blessing. I am who I am and I promise to do all these things to you. Because I am the God who never goes back on my word. And perhaps you're wondering, how does a covenant deal with doubt and disbelief? And the answer is the covenant is all about promises. Seven promises made here by God to Israel. That's the foundation to any covenantal relationship. When you enter into a committed relationship with anyone, in marriage, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, or perhaps in the business agreement, or international alliances between governments and nations. The key to that relationship is promise. That you promise each other what you will do. You vow to one another that you will be faithful. You will stand by them. Despite temptations and difficult times, that nothing is going to shake or change this bond. Or at least worked into this agreement language that what will happen if one party breaks their promises that there will be promises of what of the, what the consequences will be that's what makes covenantal relationship work that's what makes it meaningful and reliable knowing that both sides will keep your word and that's what god is doing he's promising israel he's swearing by his own name i am who i am i cannot lie i will redeem adopt and bless you Go, Moses, and tell this to the Israelites. And you see, in the covenantal relationship, you don't have to worry about false assumptions about God. You don't have to presume God's behavior. He lays it all out. He may not give you the details of what's going to happen, but he says it will come to fruition. He promises to do his part, even though the road there is filled with challenges and hardships. And there's no guarantee it's going to happen quickly. It may, but that's up to God. Once you're in a covenant with God, you relate to God with absolute confidence of his role and your future. But here's the beauty. Even when you and I cannot uphold our part of this covenantal religion, even though when we fall short, even when we doubt and turn away and we disbelieve, God still fulfills his part of the bargain. In fact, what he does in this covenantal relationship that we have with God, when we fall short, there are consequences. There's judgment because we turn away from God. That is sin. And sin in itself must be dealt with. And that requires judgment and punishment. And God says, I will punish and judge sin. But since you cannot stand against my judgment, you will not be able to handle, I will pay the penalty for you. I will send my son, Jesus Christ, so that he pays your penalty, so that in this covenant, this agreement, even though you fall short, I'm going to still hold it up. I'm going to see this through. 
Because it's not about you. It's not about your doubt. It's not about your disbelief. You cannot separate from me by your will or work. By your struggles, your sins. Nothing can separate you from my love for you. Because you are secure in my promises. I am who I am. I promise I will save you. I will redeem you. I will adopt you. I will bless you. I will see this through. And you need to learn to trust in me. Trust knowing that no matter what happens, God is with us. What governs our relationship with God is this new covenant. We promise to obey and worship the Lord. And God promises to redeem, to adopt, and to bless us. He not only fulfills his part, he fulfills our part of the covenant. Because what we cannot fulfill, Christ does. With his perfect obedience. Isn't that amazing? To be part of an agreement, a relationship that is feels safe? That God himself secures? That drives out your doubt. So the next time you're struggling with the question of where is God? Why are you doing this? Why do you even bother to send me? Remember of what Christ has done. Remember the cross, the penalty that he has paid. Remember, nothing separates you from his love. Don't make false assumptions about human behavior and actions. Don't make false presumptions about how God works, about his timeline. Know that you are in him, and he is yours. Let's bow and pray. Father, indeed, you are good. You are loving and kind, and you are gracious. We thank you that your faithfulness, your love, is greater than our doubt, greater than our disbelief. Even when we sometimes go through moments of despair, wondering why, where are you, O oh Lord, that you do not abandon us, that you never forsake us, you are still with us. So Lord, this morning I pray, especially for those of us who are struggling with those questions now, or those who will struggle with this in the future, Lord, would you remind us, bring to our mind once again this truth in a fresh and a new manner that you hold us closely to your heart, that we are in your hands. Nothing can take us away. Nothing can separate us because you are God and you hold on to your promises. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives. I pray that you would respond to our questions. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. But, Lord, ultimately, would you give us peace? Would you give us faith? Would you help us to trust in you? Even when we doubt, when we still cry out to you, Lord, we struggle with our disbelief. Help us, Father. Reach down and rescue us, Lord, for we need you desperately. We thank you and we trust in you, Lord, for you are good. And in your son Jesus' name we pray.